Thank you, Dr. Boyd. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Pediatric Grand Rounds. It is March 20th, uh, 2019, of course. It is the first day of spring, believe it or not, so happy spring. It is, as I mentioned last uh, week in Chad Chatter, it is it's the day after Certified Nurses Day. I missed that one in my list of healthcare professionals we're celebrating this month. It is, I also didn't note last week, but I had it on the slide. It is um, perhaps most importantly National uh, Social Work Month and National um, Child Life Month. So um, if you haven't already, congratulate and thank our, our, all of our colleagues. And we'll have a chance, I, I guess, to celebrate the doctors March 30th in our, in our broader nursing community in early May. So today is our continuing uh, Chad Pulmonary Mini Fellowship Series, where we uh, gather to hear about important um, and common, uh, or, or important or common conditions in the in the pediatric specialties that we care for, and try to get us up to speed from stuff we might not have heard since nursing or medical school. Uh, the latest and the greatest. Our friends are watching. I see on video in in the community group practice sites. And we welcome back to the podium, actually, uh, Dr. Brian O'Sullivan, who is, <clears throat> I, I thought he was here last year giving Grand Rounds, but if I look at his Grand Rounds series, which is a, a, a lot of uh, talks, it was perhaps um, immunizing ourselves against Big Pharma, uh, the ethics of clinical trials and marketing uh, four years ago, January 2015, <laughs> not too long after you had uh, joined us here. I think in 2014 uh, from UMass where he was professor of pediatrics and professor of pediatrics here, of course, in pulmonology in the CF Center. He's also the uh, associate director of the Clinical and Translational Science Award Synergy, leading the Manchester Clinical Trials Hub, and he's going to update us on uh, a range of somatoform respiratory disorders. So thanks, Brian. And we'll see if we can make this all work. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk about a couple of different things. Uh, I'll spend about the first half of my talk talking about vocal cord dysfunction, the second half talking more about habit cough, and then to borrow from the car talk boys, the third half will be trying to bring them all together, okay? And we'll see if we can uh, kind of make that all work. Um, so uh, no disclosures. Um, Definition of vocal cord dysfunction, I'm going to start with some fairly plain stuff um, and hopefully move to something a little more interesting. Uh, this is uh, characterized by partial or, well, not total, but partial closure of the vocal cords inappropriately um, during usually inspiration, but it can be expiration also. Um, and it generally presents with strider, um, and it's a single sound. I think one of the keys is that when you have asthma, and you've got thousands of little airways that are narrowed, you're going to have a very musical, wheezy sound. And if you listen to different parts of the chest, you're going to hear different sounds because it's different airways involved. With vocal cord dysfunction, the sound's all coming from the larynx, from the vocal cords. So it's going to be a single pitch. You may hear it throughout the chest, uh, but it's going to be one sound um, and not that kind of orchestral sound you get with uh, asthma where there's thousands of little airways uh, contributing. Um, Usually treatment, and I'm going to get back to this a lot uh, further on, but it's mostly a behavioral treatment is the best thing. There are some medicines that are now being talked about for treatment um, and uh, counseling sorts of things is the major treatment, but it's usually behavioral sorts of things that help with that. Um, interestingly, it tends to occur more in young women, teenage girls, 
Um, not sure why that is, although we'll talk about that again a little bit in, as I said, the third half, if you will. Um, and it can coexist with asthma, and that's actually a, a huge issue because it can be really hard to tell which one you're dealing with. And there's a lot of uh, concern about, is this asthma, is this vocal cord dysfunction, how do we uh, know the difference? So this is, I realize the red is almost impossible to read, but this is from a journal uh, that kind of listed all these different terms that's been used for it, and I've pulled out a few of the ones, like Munchausen Strider. In 1974, there was a publication about a woman who had recurrent episodes of Strider, was hospitalized multiple times, and finally it was realized that this was vocal cord dysfunction. They didn't call it that. They actually called it Munchausen Strider. They thought she was doing it on purpose to get attention. It's also been called hysterical Strider and psychogenic Strider and factitious asthma. Really pejorative terms, uh, very pejorative terms. I much more prefer, uh, you could say functional strider, that's still a little bit. Paradoxical vocal fold motion is kind of nice because that's just descriptive. The vocal folds are closing at a time they aren't supposed to. So paradoxical vocal fold motion is a much less pejorative term. Um, I'm going to take a little time out and just say, let's remember, in 1974, there were people standing in academic medical centers like this, giving grand rounds, calling it hysterical strider. Um, and they thought they were very up to date. Um, let's give them a little break. And also, let's use a little humility. 50 years from now, there are going to be people standing up here laughing at what we said in 2019. So um, I think it's always important to, to have a little humility about where we are in the world. Um, but still, those are freaking pejorative terms, and they're not ones I like. So um, I much prefer a descriptive term like vocal cord dysfunction. That's a, a very reasonable term. But paradoxical vocal fold motion is the real description. So what are we talking about? Um, this would be, uh, let me see if I can even maybe do it, if it shows up better here. So this would be normal with an opening um, during, um, uh, during mid-expiration, uh, so the vocal folds are open and the air can get through. This would be with things really closed completely, and far over um, on your, uh, your right there is uh, what is really typical of laryngomalacia with a epiglottis that's really uh, omega-shaped or curled, and the uh, arytenoid processes are kind of collapsing into the uh, glottic opening. And this is very typical of kids who have babies who have severe laryngomalacia. This would be more kind of what's happening um, with uh, vocal fold dysfunction or VCD, where things are closing in during uh, inspiration, leading to this, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to make myself cough doing that. <coughs> So, yeah, wow, okay, I usually can imitate it pretty well, but not today, I guess. Um, and here's some actual pictures. So this was done with a laryngoscope during exercise, um, and I point this out for a couple of reasons. One is it's, this is, just came out last month, so this is a topic that's really still being discussed that maybe have been discussed 50 years ago, but there's some new ideas about it, and again, we'll get to that, but this just came out uh, in February. I'm not sure why they did it this way, but they put the normal in the middle. So you can see here, at rest, mid-inspiration, I'm not sure how well you can see it, but the vocal folds are open, mid-inspiration uh, with submaximal exercise still open, mid-inspiration maximal exercise, and mid-expiration maximal exercise, the vocal folds are open. That's normal. That's how it's supposed to work. You've got to get air in and out, especially when you're exercising. You want to increase um, airflow. Um, and I'll go down to the bottom here, this inspiratory, this person would have had inspiratory strider. So 
mid-inspiration, submaximal exercise, things are beginning to close up. And with maximal exercise, the vocal folds are closing, the uh, laryngeal structures are folding in, and that person's going to make a lot of noise as they try to suck in air during um, maximal exercise. During expiration, the vocal folds open up. So this person's got paradoxical motion of the vocal folds during inspiration and is going to make a inspiratory stridulous sound and <gasps> that sort of thing. <clears throat> this person up top is absolutely just the opposite. Vocal folds are fine during inspiration, but during expiration, and especially with maximal exercise, that's closing down. So that person's going to be <clears throat> on the way out. So that's the one that can sound a lot like asthma because it's expiratory, it's a high-pitched wheezing sound, but again, it's coming from the larynx and it's due to vocal fold problems, not due to small airways disease. So the differential diagnosis can be long, although frankly, and again, I blocked out or didn't block the ones that aren't quite as common, but asthma and exercise-induced bronchospasm is certainly high on the list of the differential diagnosis for that sound. Um, a foreign body is possible, although obviously the history should be more helpful with that. Um, vocal cord paralysis or paresis, certainly we see that in some people who have perhaps had surgery. If you have a PDA ligation, it's possible to clip the recurrent laryngeal nerve at that time and cause vocal cord problems. Um, acquired or congenital subglottic stenosis, and I showed you a picture of a, this is more of a baby problem, not a teenage problem, but laryngomalacia with the collapsing in will cause inspiratory stridor also. So again, the big problem here, or the big thing that we see, I think uh, Lou and I both see kids who are, gee, is this VCD or is it asthma? And there are differences. I think one of the huge <coughs> keys is that people with VCD don't get hypoxemic. Their VQ matching in their lung, their ventilation perfusion matching is fine. And they're getting enough air in to get oxygen in. So they don't become hypoxemic. They may sound very distressed, but you put a pulse ox on them and they're 99, 100%. Whereas someone with asthma who's got a lot of small airways disease does have ventilation perfusion abnormalities and may very well, they don't have to have a lower pulse ox, but they may very well have a lower pulse oximetry. So very big difference there. And I think that's a, a real helpful uh, clue. Um, if you're doing pulmonary function tests, and I know most people in their office seeing someone like this may not be, but the expiratory limb, if it's an inspiratory problem, when they blow out, things open up. The expiratory limb of the flow volume loop is going to be normal in VCD, where it's going to be scooped out in asthma. And I'm going to show you pictures to, to illustrate that. Um, VCD stops, starts abruptly. It's very episodic, whereas asthma obviously has got, it may be episodic, but there's a lot more instances and, and more persistent symptoms. Um, they both can lead to frequent office visits, frequent ED visits, and often over medication for VCD, which doesn't necessarily need any medication. So you need to be a little careful that you're not chasing your own tail, giving medicine after medicine after medicine for asthma when it's really not asthma. So here are the flow volume loops that I just wanted to show you. So typically in asthma, we'll go over to the one on your right, Pre-exercise, a very nice expire. So by definition, expiration is above the x-axis, inspiration is below. These are flows, uh, speed of the air getting in. And normally, a nice peak flow and a good smooth curve and then an inspiration 
with exercise in asthma, if you're getting bronchospasm, it's as you start to exhale and the small airways are narrowed that you get slowing of flow. So this would be full lung volume, residual volume, and as you exhale, there's slowing of the airflow, so you get this scooping out of the flow volume loop with exercise. With VCD, if it's an inspiratory problem, what you get is the inspiratory loop. So again, expiration above the x-axis, inspiration below. Normal pre-exercise, but after exercise, when they're <coughs> having an inspiratory strider, they, yeah, sorry, they can't get flow, so that's really flattened off there. So that would be a clue if you're doing pulmonary function testing, if they're symptomatic. So if they're not having the strider, they're not going to have that. Again, this person pre-exercise had a very normal inspiratory loop, but it was post-exercise when he or she um, was having strider that the uh, inspiratory loop was abnormal. And I'm hammering a lot about asthma and VCD and the differences, but uh, that's because, again, the kids I see anyway are usually referred either because the family felt that this noisy breathing is asthma or perhaps the primary care doctor has been concerned, is it asthma or is it VCD, and wants some uh, confirmation. So it's something that that's the reason I see these kids generally is to differentiate from asthma. So exercise-induced bronchospasm, EIB. Generally, the wheeze would be, the noise would be on expiration. If the VCD is during inspiration, it's, the noise is going to be on inspiration. VCD peaks with peak exercise. So as you're exercising, that picture we saw earlier, maximal exercise, that's when the vocal cords are closing, whereas asthma tends to be worse after exercise. Lots of people can exercise and then post-exercise have cough or wheeze if they've got exercise-induced bronchospasm. Um, and again, so it peaks, asthma peaks, exercise-induced bronchospasm peaks maybe uh, 3 to 15 minutes after exercise, whereas VCD stops. They relax, the vocal folds open, and they aren't having the noise anymore. The one exception I want to make is it absolutely can be on expiration, too. So there are certainly people who have the VCD on expiration, and that's going to sound a lot more like asthma because, again, it's this high-pitched weaves, if you will. I'll put that in air quotes um, after exercise. So that can be the same in either. And just to show you again, this is post-exercise pulmonary function test with exercise-induced bronchospasm. This person was cycling, stopped cycling, and they did pulmonary function tests every minute out for quite a bit. I don't think they did every minute all the way through, but for several minutes. And you can see that the peak decrease in change in FEV1 was out more the 10, 12-minute range, not right away. There is some drop early on, but the peak drop is out 10 or 12 minutes after exercise. So when I see children in the office who we are concerned about exercise-induced bronchospasm, I should have them run up and down the hallway for five minutes, and then 10 minutes later repeat spirometry. Now, that's a, a quick and dirty. It's not a, a highly scientific test. But if they drop you know, 10, 15, 20% of their baseline at 10 minutes after, I'm pretty sure they've got exercise-induced bronchospasm. So that's, again, something we do, I do, to, to help uh, differentiate. Whereas if they had vocal cord dysfunction, what I would see is perhaps no drop in FEV1 or a real flattening of that curve uh, of the either expiratory or inspiratory uh, limb of the flow volume loop. Yeah, so signs and symptoms. I think the big thing is this gets called wheeze a lot. 
not so much by physicians, but parents and patients. So if someone comes into you and says, my child is wheezing with exercise, ask a little more about it because what they're calling wheeze may be something you call strider or stertor uh, that has nothing to do with the lower airways and what we as physicians call wheezing. Um, these kids absolutely tell you they can't get air in. I can't breathe, and they often point to their throat or their superglottic, I mean, their supersternal notch, and say, it's here. I can't get air in here. And they're pointing at right where it is. The, you know, isn't it Osler who said, uh, your patient will tell you what's wrong? You know, ask your patient, he will tell you what's wrong? Well, they do. They tell you what's wrong. It absolutely is scary. If you feel like you can't get air in, it is scary. That's a very scary sensation. So this fear of suffocating, this real panic, which, of course, can only cycle it around more, get you even more upset, more vocal cord dysfunction, more problems. So it becomes the cycle. And these kids may have cough with this, <coughs> as I cough, um, which, um, again, kind of makes it a little harder to know from asthma sometimes because the parents come in and say, my child wheezes and coughs. And you say, well, that's asthma. It's a typical asthma presentation. But it's irritation of the vocal folds that's then causing them to cough. Um, I would say one of the real keys for me to ask about is, can someone else hear the noise? Because when it's wheezing, you need a stethoscope to hear wheezes. When it's vocal cord noise, <laughs> you can hear that all over the field. And that's often what, you know, you know the kid comes in and the parents come in and say, he's playing soccer and I can hear him from the sidelines when he's having his asthma attack. And yeah, no, you don't hear asthma attack from the sideline. Um, what you hear is, voice, sound coming from the vocal cords. So I think that's a real key too, is can other people hear this noise? And I always ask them, do your friends tell you they hear you wheezing? And often it's a yes on that. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's the friends who have told them they need to go see a doctor, so <laughs> kids are pretty smart. Um, so the people at Massachusetts General Hospital and Mass Eye and Ear Infirmary did a study that got published, it's a few years ago now, 2011, where they looked at 59 children, they kind of did a chart review on 59 children who presented with vocal cord dysfunction. Uh, mean age teenager, early teenage years, and the female male was three to one in their group. And I think that's relatively common. That's, I, I think we see something similar to that. Major problems, shortness of breath with exercise, Throat discomfort or tightness, I think it's, in my experience, it's higher than 60%, but that's what they found in their group. Um, it's not such a problem at rest, although it can be. Um, and some people, seems to be reflux may contribute to that. If you get some stomach acid up in the back of your throat, that may cause some laryngospasm too. The definitive diagnosis, and it's not something I do routinely, is to put a laryngoscope into someone and video them while they're exercising. Uh, yeah, not something we're going to routinely do all the time. But it, it, it certainly is done in study situations. And there's a lot of ENT uh, and pulmonary people who feel you have to do this to make the diagnosis. I disagree. I think it's a clinical diagnosis based on history and, and just listening to the child make noise. But this is a great way to do it. And let's see if we can make the video work. Just click on this, do you think? Uh, we'll see. Open here? Okay. There we go. 
So this is the girl on the bike, and this is baseline. And you can see the vocal folds closing there as she's. So that is a way to make the diagnosis. I'm not sure you need to do that, to be honest, but, uh, but you can. Um, and in the, in the literature, they'll show that as being the definitive way to make the diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction. Um, triggers, uh, again, exercise, that's what they just showed there, and I've talked a lot about it looking like exercise-induced bronchospasm. But clearly, there are other triggers. Um, stress, anxiety. Uh, again, this is where it you know, got to be called those pejorative terms like psychogenic and factitious, um, because there's no question that, that stress plays a role in it. Reflux may. Um, the people at Pittsburgh have put together a little scoring system for vocal cord dysfunction, and they say uh, in their scoring system, uh, exposure to odors or fumes that trigger VCD is a big uh, component of their scoring system. I'm not sure I've seen that so much in my practice, but uh, uh, maybe I'm not asking the right questions about that. Um, but certainly that can be a contributing factor. And post-nasal drip, anything again that's irritating uh, the laryngeal area can uh, trigger it. I don't think you need to do fancy laryngoscopy, whoops, sorry, to make the diagnosis. I think it can be made clinically and I worry that if you do a lot of testing, you're only reinforcing a problem that may have, in fact, an anxiety component. Uh, you just keep telling them over and over again there's something wrong because they're going, you're going to do more and more tests. I don't think that's necessarily the right way to make the diagnosis. So um, I think it really is history taking and listening to the patient. So therapy, this, uh, the top uh, four things here are from that study at Mass Eye and Ear, or the chart review at Mass Eye and Ear. Um, and absolutely, speech therapy is the treatment of choice. It, it works a huge percent of the time. They said 63% success rate with almost four treatments or four visits to a speech therapist. Um, I'd say it's at least that in my experience. It may be even higher percentage of success. Um, if there's strider at rest, it may not be quite as good. Um, they did not find anti-reflux therapy as being particularly helpful, but I do think if there's a strong history of reflux, you might consider that. Um, and they did find that a small percentage, you know, 70% did not have psychiatric disorder, but 30% did, so at least there's some reason to be thinking about that. Um, some other people have talked about use of uh, Atrovent prior to exercise, that there seems to be a vagal component to this, and if you block that, um, you may, in fact, be able to relieve some of the uh, strider uh, with exercise. Um, and I think the bottom line is, is this is the most important, that reassurance, regardless of anything else you do, just reassure people that makes a big difference. Um, and I guess I'll make a, a vote here for using our metaphoric white coat to tell people they're going to get better, that they don't have something serious that's helpful. There is a real placebo effect to that that's beneficial and uh, important to keep in mind. We are, in fact, figures of authority. And if we tell someone they're okay and they're going to get better, that's got a real positive effect uh, uh, therapeutically. And that's what we're after. We want the people to be better. It doesn't matter exactly how they get there. We just want them better. The American Thoracic Society puts out a handout uh, that you can download. Um, you can just go to American Thoracic Society and find this uh, on what is vocal cord dysfunction. I really like this picture of this girl holding her throat because that's 
often how they present. That's not actually that unusual. Maybe not quite as dramatically as that, but um, I have found this really helpful for a couple of reasons. One is it gives credence to the diagnosis. So if the parents or the child are kind of not really receptive to the diagnosis, this is, hey, this big body, international body, it's called the American Thoracic Society, but the European Thoracic Society agrees that this, you know, huge body of specialist says this exists. That, that's very uh, verifying for us as physicians. More importantly, I think, is it helps the child know, I'm not weird. This happens. I give it out and I say, look it, they've printed this up because so many people have this problem that the Thoracic Society felt we needed to have a handout for patients. And I think that gives kids a lot of feeling that they're not weird, they're not strange, this isn't something terrible, it's not a big psychiatric problem, that okay, this is common, it happens, and I've got it too. Plus, it goes through speech therapy. It goes through a little bit of the anatomy of what's going on. So I really like this handout a lot. Um, and if Jess and Nicole in Manchester are watching, this is a different one than we use in handout. We need to print it up again. It's a new one, so <laughs> please get on that. While, <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to take a little break here and talk about, oh, this does not project at all well, I don't think. Um, this is an x-ray. When I was at UMass, I saw this boy. He was a teenager. Um, he'd been in a motor vehicle accident um, and was thrown from the car and was uh, in dire distress and was intubated in the field. Um, he had broken ribs, um, and this is later on. This is posterior ribs uh, callus forming there. He had multiple broken ribs. Um, he spent quite a bit of time in the hospital. He went home from the hospital after he was cleared by physical therapy, but he wasn't doing much of anything. He was on crutches. He was not doing any real physical exercise. Um, and he came back to see me about a month later. Um, as he had started to heal and do more exercise, he found he was having trouble breathing. And he was making noise on both inspiration and expiration. And after, his primary care doctor actually sent him for evaluation for asthma. Um, and... Um, this is a little out of order. We did this x-ray after, but I think you know, it doesn't project very well. But there's a real narrowing up there at the top of the trachea that you probably can't really see, although on the real x-ray it showed up better. Um, and we did a, a flow volume loop. And remember, that's supposed to be this big peak and this big inspiratory loop. And this was flattened on both. He had both inspiratory and expiratory <coughs> flow limitation. And that's because... Whoops. This was what his airway looked like. Um, and I think on the MRI you can see where it is here better than you could on the x-ray. Um, he had been intubated in the field. He had scar tissue. He had circumferential uh, scarring. And he was breathing through a pinhole. When he went home, he wasn't doing any exercise. He wasn't stressing the system. He could get sufficient air through when all he was doing was lying in bed watching TV. When he started to move around, he couldn't get enough air in to do anything. And he was making a lot of noise. Um, and uh, Chris Hartnick, who's a great airway surgeon at Mass Eye and Ear, saw him and between laser treatment and dilatation, opened up his airway and a month later, post-op, that's what he looked like. And his flow volume loop returned to normal. I only show this, this is not vocal cord dysfunction, obviously, but I was talking about the differential diagnosis and this would be acquired subglottic stenosis. So it's the kind of thing you need to at least be thinking about some other stuff um, and not get too trapped in thinking that every noisy child has vocal cord dysfunction or asthma. There are other things that can happen. Again, history taking was 
critical in that particular case. All right, changing gears. So the first half, vocal cord dysfunction. Now we're going to talk about um, what may be called tick cough or habit cough or is now being called somatic cough syndrome. Generally, this is, again, a diagnosis you can make a lot by, by purely uh, listening to the child. It's generally a loud honking cough. One of the keys is the kids are coughing, 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 but they don't look distressed. That bell indifference sort of thing, they just aren't really sick appearing, but they're coughing, coughing, coughing. The key is it goes away when they're asleep. It's a tick. It goes away when they're asleep. And I think it's really important to ask about sleep because I've had lots of parents tell me he coughs all night. Yeah, he coughs from 10 to 11 to 12, but then he finally falls asleep and the cough goes away. And then when he wakes up at 8 o'clock in the morning, he starts coughing again. Um, it's not do they cough at night, do they cough when they're asleep. That's the key question. Um, it can be very disruptive. This can be a really loud honking cough, and it sometimes leads to long-term absence from school because it's so disruptive. Um, generally diminishes with distraction. So often when I'm saying, okay, I want you to take a few breaths while I listen to you, and I take my time listening front and back and over-listen perhaps, they don't cough during that time. That's not 100%, but certainly that's a common thing. Um, and it's inducible. You can ask them to do it for you, and they'll do this honk for you. Um, and um, if you're talking about coughing, they cough more. So the key there is it's really uh, inducible and um, uh, can be diminished with distraction. Um, and again, the old-fashioned terms of psychogenic probably don't apply. It's usually not associated with psychiatric illness. It's, it's a tick. Um, having said that, it's been around for a long time, and the British Medical Journal in 1985, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this description of psychogenic cough. Again, I don't like that term. Are any of you aware of this article from 1984? Maybe some of the old people are, or the cough in the bedsheet. This is a, a couple of physicians in New York City published their experience with kids with habit, what they called habit cough, or psychogenic cough. They wrapped the kids in a bedsheet and said, your chest is too weak to hold in this cough, so you're coughing. We're going to wrap up your chest, and your cough's going to go away. And it did. It was highly successful. I tried it once, and the parents laughed at me. So I, I don't do this routinely. But uh, um, it actually does. And it just gets to the suggestive quality of things, that if you as a physician tell someone what's going to work, it has a tendency of working. Um, and it really did work. It's, it's an interesting article to go back and look at. Um, more recently, again, getting away from the term psychogenic, uh, the American uh, College of Chess Physicians came out with an expert panel that, uh, a couple of years ago calling this somatic cough syndrome and tick cough. Um, can occur in adults and children. Um, obviously, we see it predominantly in children. But I want to highlight some things that are in this uh, British Medical Journal article from 1985, because even if I don't agree completely with what they're calling it, some of the wording is pretty important. Um, it says, all those concerned with the care of children and adolescents will be familiar with the young patient who seems relatively well apart from persistent cough. The child is usually not particularly worried about the symptom, unlike his parents, teachers, and friends who find it intensely irritating. The cough may be sufficient social nuisance to pre prevent the child attending school for weeks or even months at a time. I think that's still true. Oops. Um, and down here, the diagnostic features which should alert the clinician include total absence of cough during sleep, 
often a harsh, explosive barking quality to the cough, said to, reminisce, to be reminiscent of the Canadian goose, hence the term honker, and the ability of the affected child to produce the cough on request. Most honkers are between 6 and 14 years. Um, and let's see if we can do this one. I really hope this works because this is pretty intense too. Yeah, good. Oops. Yeah. Oh, come on, sound. Well, you know, I didn't try this one before we started, and I'm afraid. Oh, what a shame. Oh, there we go. There we go. So note, he could do this on command. You know, get the camera out, let's do it. <laughs> and he's not particularly distressed. And that's so typical. Let me get out of here now. I don't think we have to watch him keep coughing forever. Uh, but that's, you know, that's that honking cough that can be done on command and is not typically what we consider pathological. I'm going to get into a little more physiology at the end, but uh, that's fairly typical. Um, often it's set off by stressors of one kind or another. It, I would say that there's a large percentage of the kids I see with a habit or tick cough who are high achievers. They are putting themselves under tons of pressure, whether it's sports or academics, often academics. They're the kids who have all A's uh, and are their parents don't have to pay for them to get into an Ivy League school. Uh, <laughs> not that that ever happens at Dartmouth, of course, but uh, um, um, you know, they really are. They're pushing themselves very hard, or their parents are pushing them. You know, there's high expectations from teachers, from sports coaches. Um, I remember seeing a girl who was a figure skater uh, who had a, a very typical cough like this. And you know, her mom and dad had spent a lot of money for her to be a figure skater. Her coach wanted her thin. She had to be athletically gifted. She had to be able to do gymnastics. She was under a ton of pressure. And she somaticized, and she really developed a cough that was really quite, uh, it gave her a break from skating, though. So I think there was some positive reinforcement there, too. Um, obviously, other things such as uh, parental discord and, and peer pressure, bullying, those sorts of things can be stresses, too. Uh, but often, it, again, it's high-achieving kids uh, frequently. Um, habit cough incidents uh, generally peaks around 10 years, something like that, although there's obviously a, quite a, a curve there from younger to older. I haven't seen too many real young children with habit pattern cough, although I, uh, I'm calling it habit pattern, I suppose I should say tick. Um, I've seen some kids in the 5-6 range, but not too many like that. Um, and that American College of Chest Physicians uh, expert panel did talk about it being present in adults too, so I don't think it disappears, I just think Perhaps we're not seeing as many of those people. Um, there was just a nice, uh, again, both VCD and, and tick cough have been getting a lot of uh, attention again lately. And this was uh, a, a UK study from 2018 that just got published uh, last year on presentation. I think the key here is the lines, outcome with simple reassurance. Generally, that'll do it. Um, and in their experience, they, were, they looked at 55 children uh, mean age, 9.9 .9 years, which is pretty good since that other graph I showed you was the peak at 10 years. So they're pretty much right on with that. Um, 
Most of the kids disappeared with sleep, but it wasn't 100%. So although I have said multiple times it goes away with sleep, there may be an occasional child where there's some cough with sleep, but that's unusual. The diagnosis in this group from, uh, from England was based on typical history and normal examination and a typical cough. They did not do a lot of stu uh, ancillary studies. Um, and uh, cough resolved uh, in 82% of those who were followed. 12% uh, on the day of consultation, just reassuring. Again, that reassurance makes a big difference. This is okay, you don't have anything wrong, you're a healthy kid, you'll get better. 96% um, of the children or the parents bought into the diagnosis, and this is, you know, I definitely have gotten pushback on this diagnosis. No, my child, you know, because they do think you're saying your child's, their child's crazy or something, um, which you're not saying, but if the parents don't buy into it, um, relief is, is less likely with just simple reassurance. Um, and only a small percentage later were found to have some more serious tick disorder. So it is a tick, but it's, it's not something that's lifelong or necessarily uh, hugely problematic. But the mean duration when they saw these kids, that top line again, was three months. So it's not something that goes away generally in a week or two. It's very uh, self uh, uh, persisting, generating, that you cough, you irritate yourself, you cough, you get into the idea of coughing. Um, but again, the crucial question is whether the cough disappears with sleep. Not always the case. Again, just kind of reassuring you. Some people, in fact, have more. Um, and we've already talked about a lot of this, but uh, there can be initial triggers, can be respiratory tract infection, other illness that leads to some cough that then gets habituated. So habit pattern, that you get a cough for some, if you will, true, I hate to say true physiologic reason, but a cold, asthma, something like that, you start coughing and then it becomes habituated. Um, and I do like, this is actually taken from a journal article that was review. Uh, experienced pediatricians may be able to make the diagnosis of tick cough instantly on seeing the child and hearing the cough. If you hear what we just heard a minute ago, and I've got to tell you, again, when I was at UMass, we had a, a very experienced MA who was rooming our patients, and she'd come in and give us the paper and say, that's another tick cough in room three or whatever. <laughs> she knew. Uh, she, she absolutely knew. She had heard this so many times and knew what it was. So I don't think you have to be an experienced pediatrician to make the diagnosis. Um, but you do have to hear it a few times, and you have to be, kind of realize what it is. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's very, very, very um, typical. It can be a dry little cough or more frequently that big honking cough, but it can be a dry little uh, sounding irritative throat clearing cough also. So extensive testing only reinforces the problem and talking about cough reinforces the problem. Um, so, and again, it often starts after an acute respiratory illness. Um, a lot of extra work doesn't really, you know, help you with the diagnosis. You know the diagnosis right away. Doing a bunch of tests is just not necessary. And again, we talk about um, being careful in our radiation, being careful in our medications, um, that appropriate use is important. Let's not overdo things. It can coexist with asthma. And I think that's a problem we get into because there's cough variant asthma and there's habit cough or tick cough. And sometimes it's hard to know which is which. And I would say that I have trouble sometimes knowing which is which and sometimes Again, if the history sounds like someone has asthma, treating their asthma a little more aggressively may be helpful. But again, the key is that cough going away during sleep. Asthma is worse at two or three in the morning. Our endogenous cortisol is lower than, our endogenous epinephrine is lower than. What do we use to treat asthma? Steroids and 
and albuterol, uh, beta agonist. So when your own beta agonist, your own steroid are at the lowest, you're going to be more apt to have asthma symptoms. So asthma tends to be worse in the middle of the night, whereas habit pattern cough tends to go away at night. Treatment, again, reassurance. But number one, stop reinforcing the cough. If I ask you not to think about pink elephants and all I do is talk about pink elephants for the next five minutes, you're going to be thinking about pink elephants. So if, if the parents say, why are you coughing? Quit coughing. This coughing is driving us crazy. And the teachers are saying, quit coughing, kid. Go get a drink of water. Go see the school nurse. You're coughing. All they're going to do is cough. So number one, I tell the parents, and it's, this is not always easy, say the hardest job for you when you leave here today is not to talk about cough again. And that's hard because it is disruptive. And things that were in that British Medical Journal article, it's disruptive, it's irritating. Siblings hate it. You know, oh my God, brother, won't you stop coughing like that? You know, so you got to tell the family to buy into the fact that this is not going to get better by talking about it. You need to not talk about it. Reassure the child and the family that this is not dangerous. That is not a horrible lung disease. They don't have pneumonia. They don't have horrible asthma. They don't have lung cancer, whatever. This is okay. Cognitive behavioral therapy or some sort of relaxation therapy uh, works really well. Speech therapy can be helpful for both vocal cord dysfunction and tick cough. Um, so usually, it's, from my perspective, it's reassurance. If that doesn't make them better, and again, that UK study showed that, that simple reassurance is very helpful. If that alone doesn't do it, then referral to someone who can help them with some sort of relaxation or CBT uh, is good. Uh, there's one article of in adults, not children, and I'm certainly not recommending this. This is not FDA approved, but uh, Lyrica may help in terms of the neuropathic contribution to this cough. So, there may be some medical treatments available, although I would not say that's by any means routine or something that I've done a lot. I did try it in one teenager who just, the family hadn't bought into the, the, the diagnosis. They weren't getting behavioral therapy, and I was kind of up against it, and I tried it, and I'm not sure it made a whole lot of difference for her, to be honest. Um, in that study, in adults, both the placebo and the pregabalin group improved. The pregabalin group had a little better quality of life, but it wasn't exactly a miracle drug by any means. So, I said at the beginning, we're kind of talking a spectrum of disease here, uh, habit pattern cough and vocal cord dysfunction. So um, here's uh, a little flow sheet that came from a journal article. I did not make this myself. Uh, talking about somatoform respiratory disorders with a nice ICD-10 code there for you to build with if you'd like to. Um, so they talk about, uh, whoops, didn't mean to do that. I'll go back over here again. Um, so stereotype respiratory disorders being that kind of uh, tick cough. Again, they're using the term habit cough here. Functional disorders of respiratory regulation, neural dysregulation, vocal cord dysfunction. The vocal folds are overreacting. <coughs> dysregulation of breathing pattern. Um, certainly we can see hyperventilation in some kids who have a panic attack, and they've kind of got panic as a separate thing, but I think those two are very closely linked. And although I'm not going to talk about it in any length today, I'm sure Lucy's, and I do, see some kids who come in just because of this deep sigh they take periodically, and the parents are sure there's something wrong with them, and they just, they'll do it in the office, they'll just kind of stop and go, I feel like I have to take a deep breath because my lungs aren't expanding enough. And they're perfectly well otherwise. You can do all the testing you want in the world. You won't find anything wrong. And they just have the sigh respiration. And again, reassurance is the answer there. Um, whoops. 
What I want to get to, though, is I'm drawing another line here. Recently, in the last two years or so, there's been a lot of literature out kind of talking about neural dysregulation, not so much of respiration, but of the larynx, contributing to both habit cough and vocal cord dysfunction. And so uh, in the third half, as I said, I'm going to talk about what kind of maybe ties these things together in that arc I showed earlier. So laryngeal hypersensitivity, is that the link that's kind of t tying things together? Um, so it talks about, the literature now is talking about the larynx, which is incredibly innervated, is in some people overly sensitive and overly reactive. So you can think of this a little bit like asthma. There's people who have hyperreactive airways that are sensitive to certain things they breathe in or exercise, and then those airways overreact with um, bronchospasm. It's the same idea, that the larynx is sensitized and then overreacts. Um, for some reason, it seems to be seen more in females, which kind of goes along with that three-to-one ratio of the vocal cord dysfunction that was reported from uh, mass eye and ear. Um, they talk about cough hypersensitivity syndrome, uh, which is vaguely mediated, which may be why Atrovent is helpful for some of these people. Um, and then they use a new term, is called inducible laryngeal obstruction, rather than vocal cord dysfunction, that there's something that induces the larynx to close down. Um, and you can use modifiers. You could say exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction. You could say reflux-induced laryngeal obstruction. So you can kind of parse out uh, the causation as well as uh, what's going on uh, physiologically. Um, again, the larynx is wildly innervated, and there are uh, rich motor and sensory um, innervation. And the glottis is trying to protect the airway. The larynx wants to not let bad things get into your lungs. So it does act as a guard but in some people it's overly sensitive and can overreact. And so the um, heightened tendency for this protective closure may lead to vocal cord dysfunction, may lead to uh, excess cough. And here's, a, again, a picture of the vocal folds being closed. There's just a little opening here uh, posteriorly. Um, and so a precipitant, whether it's aspiration or an infection, uh, maybe they've got asthma underlying or... Uh, chronic uh, post-nasal drip, leads to some sensitization of the larynx. And then as it's sensitized, there's some trigger, which may be, again, one of these. You may have been sensitized by one thing and then get another trigger, catching a cold or something. And you get this exaggerated response that leads to laryngeal hyper-responsiveness and vocal cord dysfunction or chronic cough. Uh, muscle, muscle tension dysphonia is this inability to speak clearly having because your larynx is closed. And Globus is that feeling that something's stuck in your esophagus when it's not really there. You feel like you've got a chunk of food caught there. That, again, would be tightness of the laryngeal muscles contribute to that. Um, so for our, our discussion today is VCD and, and uh, chronic cough uh, perhaps being caused by laryngeal hyper-responsiveness and hypersensitivity. Um, Again, I don't have to read this all to you, but this laryngeal dysfunction leads to these symptoms. Um, inappropriate, sorry, uh, conditions associated with heightened tendency for inappropriate closure, um, and we just said vocal cord dysfunction and cough. Amplified under conditions of heightened physiological or environmental stress. So again, emotions do play a role in this. That doesn't make it a psychiatric illness, um, but definitely they play a role. And uh, interesting, dynamic CT, so they did uh, kind of 
real-time CT imaging and found that some people with, quote, difficult-to-treat asthma really did have evidence of this closure of the larynx, which really is kind of vocal cord dysfunction associated with asthma, which actually I don't know you need CT imaging for it, but it was kind of a cool <laughs> study. So, um, And it gets into the cycle. You can almost start anywhere in the cycle, but if you have stable asthma and it becomes unstable and you get anxious and you're hyperventilating, you get dysfunctional breathing, the larynx gets activated maybe with something like depression or anxiety running, uh, fitting into it, and then you get vocal cord dysfunction, you get this feeling of obstruction, that makes you short of breath, that makes you more anxious, and it just kind of cycles around and around and around. Or you could maybe start with you know, some other problem there that then uh, starts this whole cycle going. So it is a cycle with the laryngeal um, hypersensitivity contributing to all of this uh, uh, cough and vocal cord dysfunction. Um, so repeatedly associated with and implicating the development of uh, inducible laryngeal obstruction and chronic cough. Um, so postnasal drip, asthma, GERD, all those things. Um, some form of provocation is common. It doesn't have to be there, but usually you're going to get a history of something. Again, those odors uh, may be an issue. Exercise can be an issue. Um, we don't really have a lot of Treat, medical treatment. Again, I mentioned a study about uh, gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, I would not recommend those for use now, but it's interesting that there are some thoughts now that we're beginning to think about this as a neuropathic problem rather than, you know, again, Munchausen strider or factitious asthma or whatever. Uh, we're beginning to see there's a real physiologic underpinning. Uh, we may come up with some uh, uh, medical treatments. But whether or not we come up with good medical treatments, I still think cognitive behavioral therapy and speech therapy and reassurance is really the way to go. Um, and to close kind of the spectrum, started again with a spectrum. This would be kind of starting, you could have pure cough and no vocal cord dysfunction all the way through to pure vocal cord dysfunction and no cough, but all being part of laryngeal hypersensitivity and laryngeal uh, uh, hyperreactivity. And I think I will close there and leave some time for questions. Oh, sorry. Um, thank you. That was excellent. Very practical. Um, what, can you enable what speech therapists would actually do with the patient? Um, because I'm not a speech therapist, I can't. <laughs> no, no. Um, no I'm, uh, it's, it's, it's teaching kids to control their voice, to control their vocal cords. So the idea is to do... As with any kind of relaxation therapy, the idea is to practice it when you're not having problems so you can use it when you are having problems. So it's, Lou, did you want to? We have outstanding speech therapists yeah. here on campus who do a great job with it. And in the, in the adolescent athlete, they will exercise them, reproduce the symptoms, teach them the, the, the breathing exercises, which is repeated stacking sniffings, because when you sniff, you open your vocal cords. And step, step, sniffing and breathing from the diaphragm, and they will teach them, re-exercise them on the spot, and demonstrate that it works. They are fantastic. Our speech therapists. That's so. I, for for those of you, for those of you who are are distant and didn't hear uh, Dr. Gwill say it, uh, she was talking about sniffing, uh, repeated sniffing uh, with exercise to show that uh, we can open up the the vocal folds. And I must say. Being down in Manchester, I don't have quite the same um, ability to have a, a trained speech therapist. I have to rely on some people in the community, some of whom are very good. Others haven't seen as much of this. So um, yeah. thank you, Lou, for answering that. <laughs>
Thank you for that very nice talk. I, I'm glad you introduced that la latter term, the inducible molecular yeah. dysfunction, because I was having a great deal of difficulty with vocal cord dysfunction and GERD being one of the stimuli because I thought that's what the larynx is supposed to do. Right. When you get particulate right. matter and right. acid yep. liquid in, in the larynx, it, it's a protector reflex. So to extend that, I'm still having a little difficulty understanding what's hypersensitivity. Yeah. What, how, how do you say that when somebody has reflux and gets that yep. material in the larynx, that one time it's an appropriate response right. and one time it's not? Yeah, so the question is... Um, um, with GERD, how do you tell? I mean, the larynx is supposed to protect the airway. I'm just repeating for people who aren't here. Um, yeah, uh, agreed that repeated severe reflux is not, I mean, your larynx is supposed to close, absolutely. And I have certainly seen in infants, there's a, an entity that was described, again, back in the 1980s as awake apnea, that babies stop breathing because they reflux and their larynx close, their vocal cords close the way they're supposed to to protect the airway, but then they have obstructive apnea. Um, Part of the problem is the reflux, well, in this case, the reflux is setting up irritation and causing laryngeal irritation. That then means very little other reflux or maybe other stimuli other than reflux then cause the vocal folds to close because they're hypersensitive. They're, they're overly sensitive to anything because the reflux has caused some irritation there. Um, and yes, treatment with uh, uh, reflux medications may be helpful. Uh, again, the Mass General study did not see a lot of help from that, but I think if, if reflux is a big contributing factor to the initiation, then treatment with antacids may be very helpful. You're right, it is a protective mechanism. It's the fact that it's overreacting uh, that's the problem. Um, thank you for, so much for that talk. Obviously, in primary care, we see this a lot. All the time, yes. <laughs> and I only, see the, I only see the tip of the iceberg right. that gets through you guys. Right, exactly. I have yeah. a lot of anxious yeah. teenage girls yeah. in my practice. So that yeah. co-occurrence of VCD yeah. and asthma is yeah. pretty huge in yeah. my practice. I have yeah. a two-part question, though. Yeah. Um, I often will send them to get an exercise PFT to either prove or disprove mm -hmm. my theory. Mm -hmm. um, and then my second part question is because there's such a huge co-occurrence, um, is there, if you aggressively treat the asthma, does that help the VCD? And conversely, if you aggressively treat the VCD with speech therapy, does that help the subjective symptoms of asthma? Well, it certainly helps us. Yeah, no, it does. Um, so I'll start with the second part. Treating the VCD certainly can help with the subjective. I, the slide I had with kind of the, uh, let's see, go back the other way. I'm sorry. Uh, backspace, there we go. With this, you know, it, it's such a cycle that if you can break the cycle somewhere along the way, that's helpful. So if you're subjectively feeling like you can't breathe, um, that certainly can play a role in asthma too. And yes, so treating the VCD can help. Treating the asthma, yeah, again, if you're getting anxious because you can't breathe, one of the most disturbing and scary feelings any human being can have is not being able to breathe. That's awful. Um, and so kids with asthma who really feel like they can't breathe often get this anxiety overload that then causes some of this, again, hyperstimulation of the larynx and, and VCD. So they can also be, I make my finger, they can be intertwined pretty closely. And I think so treating either and or both is the way to go. But it's not easy. I agree with you. And 
Um, you can keep all those difficult ones to yourself. <laughs> uh, they're tough. There's no question. And they're the tough. role of the exercise PFT. Yeah, so absolutely. I think, I, I think that's, again, if we see spirometry has got a flattened limb of inspiratory or expiratory, depending on when they're making the noise, that can be very helpful and something we can actually show the patients, too. Again, I talked about that handout from the American Thoracic Society as being very helpful. If you can show parents and kids uh, a, a spirometry and say, this is what's happening, and boy, it's because your vocal cords, and I really use dumb terms like, oh, your silly little vocal cords, or your silly brain is making your vocal cords do something weird. Um, it's a little <laughs> immature, but it seems to get across, um, that you can really demonstrate what's going on, and I think that's very helpful. And also, again, legitimizes it, and I think that American Thoracic Society handout is great for that. You're not weird. This is common. This is why they have a handout about it. Uh, I think that can be very helpful. In the back. Um, I don't know if Primatine Mist is still available. <laughs> I hope not. It is actually. Yes, yeah, it is. It is. Yes. But, you know, it's epinephrine that doesn't actually make it all the way right, down. Right. Right. Is there any possibility that that would help? That would actually be more irritating, probably. Um, so no, not particularly. Again. Uh, something like ipotropia, matrovent, may be helpful, but the adrenergics tend to, if anything, be a little more irritating on the airways. What's the sex ratio of the called? It's, it's, it's like VCD. It's, uh, nah, no, not so much. I'm going to say a little more 50-50. Lou's shaking her head, and I think I agree with that. I'm not saying quite so. It's, it's not the three to one. It's not the three to one. Yeah. This is a pretty good, good conversation. I think Brian yeah. can be here for a little bit. So yep. Continue and we're at nine o'clock. So thanks again.